All right, I think I'm on. Um, welcome to Lakeview Church. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us in person or online. Uh, and this is Gospel Community Sunday. We're doing this a little bit differently, so we thank you for your uh, patience as we experiment and try uh, different ways of gathering, of worshiping together, of praying for one another, encouraging one another uh, through a couple of different formats we've been trying over the last couple of months. So thank you for uh, being willing to experiment with us. Uh, and we will continue worshiping together and praying for one another. We'll do that a little bit later in the service, but we're also happy to be able to live stream today for all of those of you who can't join us uh, in person. Uh, you might notice these boxes up here on the stage, and uh, this is uh, an Operation Christmas Child shoebox. Now, this is a plastic shoebox, and we are packing and uh, packaging up shoeboxes this year as part of the uh, International Samaritan's Purse Ministry of delivering these to children all over the world. Uh, and so I would encourage you, I think next Sunday uh, is their due date. Um, uh, we're, they're due back to us by the 15th, and then they, we ship them over, uh, deliver them in that week there, 16th through the 23rd. So uh, pick up a shoebox if you haven't. Now, um, I really like the plastic ones because these plastic ones can be used for more than just a, a box. A cardboard box is great, but it, it wears out relatively quickly. A plastic box lasts a long time. And there are uh, stories from missionaries that uh, for years, the kids will use these as water buckets to go you know, hike two or three miles over to get clean water and bring it back for their family. And that's the kind of stuff they use these for all kinds of things and they last a long time. So you can get a plastic one or you can pick up a cardboard one out in the lobby and bring it back. We're also doing our uh, turkey box drive for local families in need. And so there's information at the back of the lobby. You can just grab a tag off of there. It looks like most of the tags are taken. So if you want to get in on that, uh, don't miss it. Grab a tag and then we'll be bringing those back uh, two Sundays from now, I believe, and packaging up those. All right, um, if you will grab your Bible and find Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be continuing our series through the letter of Philippians, um, and we will be picking it up where we left off. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 11. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 21. And while you're finding that, have you ever noticed that, uh, let me ask you this question, have you ever noticed that one of the best ways to learn something is by watching someone else who does it well? Right, you can read about it in a book and that's great, but you just can't replace watching someone else who does it really well. Uh, my wife, Corinne, was a, a school teacher uh, before we had kids and she taught middle school English and when you are in college, going through the education program to be a teacher, the last semester of your training is called student teaching. And you, you go and you shadow a real teacher teaching real lessons to real kids in a real school. And you, uh, you practice, you watch that teacher teach, you practice teaching, they get to give you constructive criticism, mentor you, that kind of thing. Well, Corinne said she learned the most about teaching that semester when she was actually applying what she had learned the three and a half years prior in real life, when she was watching someone who was a fabulous teacher teach the kids, and she said, I learned more from watching that teacher teach and from doing it student teaching than I did the rest of my college career combined. Now, that doesn't mean that the college and the classes and the books are bad. It just means that there's something that cannot be replaced 
through in-person experience and learning together and doing it together. Well, if that's true for things like teaching or in a lot of the trades, there are apprenticeships and different things like that. If that's true for those things, how much more true is that for following Christ? If you want to know how to follow Jesus, I think the best way to learn is by watching someone else who's following Christ really well. And I don't think there's any greater example than the Apostle Paul. He's the the author of the letter of Philippians. And Paul writes in this section about how he follows Christ. What did it look like for the great Apostle Paul to follow Jesus? And I think it's really interesting in this passage what he doesn't say. You you may know a little bit about the Apostle Paul. He is responsible for writing most of the books in the New Testament. And uh, he uh, planted hundreds of churches all over the ancient Near East, literally traveling around the known world at that time, planting churches, preaching the gospel. Thousands of people came to faith because of Paul's ministry. He suffered greatly for his faith. Uh, He's writing this letter from a prison cell. (laughs) He was arrested and put in prison because he was preaching Christ. So he suffered greatly. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by poisonous snakes. He was uh, rejected by the crowds. They took him out, drug him outside of town and threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. Like he suffered greatly for Christ and all of these things. And yet in this passage, he doesn't mention any of those things. When he says, what does it look like? How do I follow Jesus? What does it look like for us to follow Christ? He doesn't talk about any of those things. The things that he talks about are actually quite simple and quite attainable for everybody. I think Paul knew that most Christians were not called to walk the same path that he walked. So when he shows us how he follows Christ, he does it in a way that is applicable and relevant to every believer in all times, at all places, in any circumstance, no matter what your path in life is like. So as we go through Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 21, keep this question in mind. What does Christian maturity look like? If we want to finish what we've started with Christ, if we want to grow up in Christ, if we want to work our salvation out with fear and trembling in Christ, what does that look like? How did the Apostle Paul follow Jesus and how can we learn from his example? That's what we're going to be talking about. And in this passage, Paul gives us four things that he does to follow Christ and we can apply these things to our lives. Now, we're actually going to start back a little bit with verse 10. The first thing that Paul tells us is to keep moving forward. Keep taking the next step. Let's back up to verse 10 where Paul has just finished this section. He's talked about uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, he talked about um, our true assurance. How do you know that you actually belong to Christ? It's the true assurance of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then he said, and our true asset is Jesus. Everything else in life is is a liability. Jesus is the only asset that we have. And then our true aim is to know Christ, to be with God now and forever. Everything else in life is a distraction. And Paul said that in verse 10. He said, my aim is to know him, meaning Christ, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
Then he goes on in verse 12, not that I have already attained this. That is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. See, Paul's saying, look, our goal in life, our aim, my true aim, our aim is to be with God, is to be uh, intimately connected to Christ, and so somehow we will attain perfection. Paul says, but I I haven't reached that goal yet. Because perfection doesn't actually come until Christ returns and we're resurrected from the dead. So Paul says, even I have not yet attained perfection. I haven't been perfected, but someday Christ will return, we will be transformed into glory, and we will be perfected. He says, I'm I'm not there yet, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. I am striving, I am moving, I am working. Until Christ returns, I am a work in progress just like everybody else. Now, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in knowing that even the Apostle Paul was a work in progress. That makes me feel a little bit less bad about myself, (laughs) right? Paul says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Instead, I am single-minded. Now, let's push pause right for a minute. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, I recommend you do, highlight that, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Instead, I am single-minded. This is what Christian maturity is. It's not reaching some level of perfection. It's not uh, knowing a certain amount of information about the Bible. It's not uh, being able to read the Bible in its original languages. It's not having a seminary degree. It's not doing all these great things. Christian maturity is being single-minded. That's what it is. Paul says, "I, I haven't reached perfection yet. Instead, this is what I'm shooting for. I'm single-minded. Now, what does it mean to be single-minded? Single-minded doesn't mean that you only think or do one thing. Rather, single-minded means that in everything that you do, in all things that you think, in every area of your life, you only have one purpose, and that is to honor God. And, And all the decisions that you make, and all the words that you say, and all the values that you hold, In every aspect of your life, every action, everything that you do, you have one ultimate motive, to bring glory to God. It's it's not that you only think or do one thing in all the things that you think and in all the things you do, you only have one agenda, to serve Christ. That's it. Whether you're at work and you're saying, I'm here at work, not just because I get a paycheck, or not just because I enjoy the work that I'm doing. I'm here at work for one ultimate reason, to honor God. So how can I honor God at work today? How can I do this accounting in a way that honors God? How can I design this product in a way that honors God? How can I relate to my coworkers in a way that honors God? How can I work for my boss in a way that honors God as if Jesus were my boss? How can I manage my team in a way that honors God as if I were reporting to Christ who is my manager, right? This is the the way that we're thinking. And all the work, and all whether it's at home, whether it's at school, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's hanging out with your friends, even when it's by yourself, in the middle of the night, 
looking on your phone, whatever it is that you're doing, and all the things that you're doing, and all the things that you're thinking, you're single-minded. You have one purpose, to honor God. That's what Christian maturity looks like. That's what Paul says. I haven't attained perfection, but instead, I'm single-minded. And he tells us what that single-mindedness looks like in the next sentence. He says, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead, with this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul isn't clinging to his past. He is striving for his future. He's not distracted by the things that have come before. He is pursuing the things that lie ahead. And I think we oftentimes get distracted by the past. We look at what has come before, and whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing, we allow the past to unduly influence us now and to distract us from what God's calling us to do next. We can learn from the past, and we should, but the past is not as important as the future. Where we've been is not as important as where we're going in Christ. So Paul says, look, I'm forgetting about what's behind and I'm striving forward to what God has ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am yearning and striving and working to be united with Christ because one day I will be perfected in him. Christian maturity isn't perfection now. It's being single-minded in our commitment, purpose, devotion, and loyalty to Christ. And I think one of the biggest challenges that Christians have in this world and that Christianity faces in our current cultural context is that we are often not single-minded in our commitment to Christ. There are so many things in our society that distract us, that pull our attention, that pull our focus away from Christ whether it's things from our past or whether it's things around us, career, success, wealth, status, popularity, uh, family, all these things are not bad in and of themselves, but they oftentimes compete for our affection for Christ. And it's not that we need to reject career and reject family and reject uh, status and reject work and, uh, and reject all these things. It's that in all of these arenas, we need to be single-minded in our commitment to honor Christ and to keep moving ahead. The boys and I, uh, one of our favorite movies is Finding Nemo. Anybody ever seen that movie? It was a little older movie, but you remember the fish, Dory? And what she says just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, right? She doesn't remember what happened five minutes ago, but her whole goal in life is to just keep swimming ahead. What a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Just keep swimming, just keep taking one step, one step, one step. At Lakeview, one of our slogans is, when it comes to following Jesus, the most important step you can take is, does anybody know what the answer? The next one. The next one. That's the only step that matters. The next one. Just take that step. And then just take that step. And then just take that step. That's what Paul's saying. Here's how I follow Jesus. One step at a time. Just like everybody else. Keep moving forward. The second thing that we learn from Paul's example is this. Do what you know. Apply what you already understand. That's what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, therefore let those of us who are perfect quote-unquote, perfect or mature, 
if you think that you are a mature believer, embrace this point of view. That perfection isn't the goal. Single-minded commitment to taking the next step is. Right? Therefore, let those of us who are perfect or mature embrace this view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Now, that might sound a little harsh. Paul's not being harsh. What he's saying is all of us have uh, lies that we believe that aren't true. And sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to whisper the truth through God's word to correct those lies that unduly alter our course in life. So he's like, he's saying, look, don't, don't beat yourself up because you're not perfect. Just keep swimming. That's what maturity is. And if you, uh, if you think otherwise, God will show you the error of your view. And then uh, verse 16, he says, nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. Do what you know. Apply what you already understand. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand. Lots of stuff in the Bible that I don't understand. There are are things in the Bible that, quite honestly, I wish weren't in there. And and I I have several things that when I get to heaven someday and I'm able to talk with Jesus face to face, I'm going to ask, why was that story in there? What, what was, you know, <laughs> that makes me a little uncomfortable. Why did you put that story in there? There are things in the Bible that are offensive to me. The question is not, do I understand everything? The question is, do I trust God with everything I understand? Right? I don't have to understand every single thing in the Bible before I put my faith in Christ and take the next step. There are things in the world that happen that I don't know the answer to why they happen. But God's not saying, uh, before you can trust me, you have to have every single question answered. You have to understand every single thing in the Bible. No, he's saying, do you trust me with what you do understand? And the follow-up question, do I trust that God understands the things I don't? what I know about God, what I know about Jesus, what I know about the Bible, what I know about myself, what I know about the world, am I trusting all of that to Christ? And am I trusting that God has a perspective that is bigger than mine? He has wisdom that is greater than mine. God knows more than I do. And so those things that I don't understand, those things that make me uncomfortable, those things that I wish weren't in there, do I trust that God knows what he's doing When he put them in there, do I trust that God knows what he's saying when he says, this is how humanity is supposed to be. God's the one that created us. He probably knows more about how life should work than we do. Do I trust God? Am I willing to put into practice those things that I already know? Sometimes we don't need a new revelation from God. We just need to obey what he's already said. That's the second point that Paul makes in this passage. The third point he says is learn from others. So he he says, keep moving forward. Do what you already know. And number three, learn from others. Follow in the footsteps of those who are following Christ. This is the point of the whole passage. But look at verse 17. He says, be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way single-minded in their commitment to Christ. Watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. For many live, about whom I have often told you, and now with tears I tell you that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Paul says, look, I want you to follow in the footsteps of those who are single-minded in their commitment to Christ. The ones who are not single-minded in their commitment to Christ are not just lukewarm, apathetic Christians. They're actually enemies of the cross. There's no such thing as lukewarm, apathetic Christians. You're either all in for Jesus or you're all out. There's no middle ground. Paul doesn't give us a, a moderate category. No, he says, I want you to follow the example of those who are single-minded in their commitment to Christ and the other people are not just immature Christians, they're actually enemies of the cross of Christ and this is what their lives look like. Their end is destruction, verse 19. Their end is destruction, not resurrection, not glory, not perfection, it's destruction. Their God is the belly. Physical pleasure, physical needs, physical pursuits, What do I need? What makes me feel good? What comforts me? Those are the things that are most important in my life. Our God is Christ. Their God is the belly. They exult in their shame rather than glorying in Christ. And they think about earthly things rather than fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, rather than lifting their minds to the heavenly realms where we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. They're focused on earthly things, the things around us, getting what they want for themselves right now, pursuing their own pleasures in life. And their end ultimately is destruction, not resurrection. Paul says, look, don't follow their example. Follow the example of those who are single-minded in their commitment to Christ. In other words, who are the people around you in your church family whose example you can follow, who you can connect with relationally? Why do we do Gospel Community Sundays? It's partly it's to try to connect with each other so that we can follow each other's examples, so we can learn from each other. I learn a ton from the people who are in our life group. Now, I don't lead a life group. I'm a freeloader. <laughs> I just show up. But when, when, when the people in the life group begin to share and they share what God has been putting on their hearts and they share uh, thoughts that they've had from scripture and prayer and they talk about how these principles and ideas apply in their lives, I pick up all kinds of stuff and I think, oh wow, I can learn that and I can learn that and I can apply that and I can apply that and it doesn't matter that I'm the only one in the room with a seminary degree. They are teaching me far more than I'm teaching them because we learn from each other. There's a difference between reading about it in a book and practicing it together in life. And that's one reason why we do life groups. That's one reason why we have gospel communities. The question is, who are you watching Whose example are you following? Learn from others. So the last point that Paul makes in this passage is remember who you are. Don't forget your identity is in Christ. Here's how Paul followed Jesus. Keep moving forward. Do what you know. Learn from others and remember who you are. Look at verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we also eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know of any one verse in the Bible that is more timely for us, having just come through a presidential election, very divided, right? 
Let's read that again. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we also eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by the means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. Paul says, look, our citizenship is in heaven and our savior is from heaven. That's what he's saying. Remember who you are. If you belong to Jesus, your citizenship is in heaven. Your fundamental identity is child of God. That's who you are first. Yes, we are citizens of the United States. But we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. That citizenship takes priority over our other citizenships. Paul was a citizen of Rome. A lot of other Jews weren't citizens. They didn't have the status of citizenship. Paul did. And yet he's saying, look, even though I have Roman citizenship, which is a high status, my more fundamental identity is as a citizen of heaven. That's who, uh, that's who I am. I am a child of God. Like the song we just sang. I am who you say I am. I am a child of God. That's the most fundamental identity. Your proof of citizenship isn't a birth certificate or a green card. It is the Holy Spirit in your life and in your heart. That's the question. Uh, When it comes time to make a decision or to act, what citizenship or what identity are we going to act out of? Right? What are the other competing identities in our culture? Our culture wants to define who you are by all kinds of things. How you vote the color of your skin, where you go to church, where you live in our country, right? The kind of person you're attracted to. We say all these things, this is your identity. This is who you are. No, it's not. My identity is child of God. My citizenship is in heaven first. So when I come uh, to a decision or a choice or a value that I have to make in life, what identity am I going to act out of? Am I going to act out of my identity as a a white heterosexual male? Or am I going to act out of my identity as a child of God? That's the question. That's what Paul's saying. Remember who you are. You're not who you once were. You are now a citizen of heaven. And our Savior is from heaven. We don't, we don't put our trust in anything else that the world puts their trust in. We're not trusting in any political party or any presidential election to actually fix any of the problems that we face in life because our Savior is from heaven. He's not from here. He's the Lord Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven into our mess, into our world, and poured out his life on the cross so that he actually could fix the problem. The problem is sin and our hearts. And it can only be fixed by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts. It can't be fixed through policies and laws and procedures and elections. So we don't put our trust in those things. We don't put our hope in those things. We don't trust any presidential candidate or any party to fix the problems. And you know, in the the last eight months, I've heard more and more and more about how people trust in science 
science will do this and science is the answer and science is real and, 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 and science is, is going to fix all the problems. But you know what? When you are lying awake in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. with an anxiety attack, how many of you pray and say, science, come and help me? <laughs> science is not our savior. Science is real Because the Lord Jesus Christ created a universe in an ordered and rational way so that we can study it and learn things through the scientific method. But Jesus Christ is the savior of our souls. He's the one that we cry out to in the middle of the night during the anxiety attack. It's not a president, it's not a governor, it's not a mayor, it's not science, it's Jesus Christ. Our savior is from heaven. And he left heaven to die on the cross so that we could be saved from our sin. Let me just wrap all this up. These are the four points. This is how the Apostle Paul followed Jesus, and this is how we follow Jesus. Keep moving forward. Do what you know. Learn from others and remember who you are. It's common in Christian circles to ask the question, Uh, where do you want to go when you die? It's a good question, by the way. If you've never never really processed that question or thought about that, I would encourage you to think about that. But I want to ask a slightly different question. What kind of person do you want to be for eternity? What kind of values do you want to have for eternity? What kind of strength or peace or joy do you want to have for eternity? What kind of person do you want to be 10 million years from now? If you want to be the kind of person that God is calling you to be, perfected, transformed, your humble body transformed into the likeness of his glorious body, united with Christ, Paul says, look, we can actually start taking steps in that direction right now because eternal life begins the moment you trust Christ. You don't have to wait for the resurrection. Yes, we're not gonna be completely perfected until the resurrection, but in the meantime, while we wait, this is how we follow Jesus. Keep moving forward, do what you know, learn from others, and remember who you are. Let's pray. And then we'll move to our next step in the service. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, Holy Spirit, for inspiring these words to the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his example. And I thank you for the example of so many people, brothers and sisters in my own church family right here, whose stories and testimonies and prayers and insights have been so helpful to me personally in my walk with you. And I have grown so much by watching them. Lord, I pray that we would be knit together. That you would not allow any uh, division or separation to come between us. That we would keep moving forward. That we would strive to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Remembering that prize that we would do it together. And that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is Gospel Community Sunday, and so uh, we want to end the service time together with about a half an hour of prayer uh, for one another. And so we've got some seats over here in this corner that are kind of all 
turned around a little bit. And so if 15 to 20 people want to move over in this side, we could also have uh, 15 to 20 or 30 people go out to the fireside room. Uh, and then if 20 or so people want to come downstairs to room 112 with me, we will go down and break up into gospel community prayer groups and encourage one another through prayer. Uh, thank you. And I'll see you down in 112 or over there or out there.